Books 188, Part B, Emmaus Heartburn. And in your Bibles, would you please open up to Luke chapter 24. There's one verse in Mark, but I'm just going to let you read about that verse in your books, okay? So we'll just stay parked in Luke 24 this morning. All right, let's uh, bow and ask the Lord's blessing on our time together and that my lips can move really fast. (laughs) Heavenly Father, we do come into your holy presence this morning embracing the truth that we have this privilege because of the death and the burial and resurrection of the Lamb of God and his great redemptive work on our behalf. We praise you, Father, for the majesty and the glory and the orderliness of your glorious creative work as we look around in this beautiful fall day and and see your creative work, the, the leaves changing and just the beauty of what you have made for us to enjoy. As we likewise praise you for the the majesty and the glory and the orderliness of your revelatory work, the scripture, that it is truly a book upon which we can confidently live our lives and entrust our eternal souls to its truths. Thank you, Father, that when we know your Son personally as our Lord and Savior, that regardless of the challenges of life, we are in a win-win situation. For to live is Christ and to die is gain. And now as we open your word to attempt to delve into its eternal riches, we ask that the Holy Spirit would enlighten our minds in perhaps new areas that we have never seen before. They've been there, but we just haven't perceived them. And may he cause the scripture to ignite a fire in our heart that is never quenched, a fire that burns so strongly that we simply must share what our spiritual eyes see with those around us. I ask that you would give me clarity of thought and speech, Father, so that your Son alone is glorified. For we do ask these things in his blessed name. Amen. Last week, if you weren't here, we looked at the setting for what we are going to be discussing today regarding the Lord's fourth post-resurrection appearance. Remember, his third was a private appearance to Simon Peter on Resurrection Sunday. We are now looking at his fourth post-resurrection appearance from one verse last week in Mark, which was Mark 16, 12, and 14 verses in Luke, Luke 24, 13 to 26. We learned that two disciples, one named Cleopas, And his unnamed companion, possibly his wife, but we don't know for sure, that these two disciples had left Jerusalem sometime Resurrection Sunday afternoon to walk approximately seven miles to a a village northwest of Jerusalem named what? Emmaus. They were very, very despondent over the death of the one they had hoped had been the true Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth. They were gloomy. With disappointment, they were not only despondent, they were disappointed that he had not been the one they had trusted would redeem Israel. Not them, personally, they weren't looking for that, but to redeem Israel. He was the subject of their conversation. And as they walked, what were they doing? They were trying to reason together, to piece together a meaning for all of the traumatic events that had occurred in Jerusalem concerning Jesus in the past three days. 
They were completely perplexed over how one who had looked so promising to be the long-awaited Messiah, the Savior, could end up dead in the prime of life. Hadn't even set up the kingdom. And he was dead. And how did he die? In a manner that was cursed by God himself. He died by hanging on a tree. Crucifixion. And God himself had said in Deuteronomy 21, 25, Cursed is every man that hangeth on a tree. So they just couldn't put it together. And to make matters even more baffling, prior to their departure from Jerusalem, these two had heard reports that very day, that very morning, of strange happenings at the rich man's sepulcher where Jesus' body had been laid. A group of women from their own company, fellow disciples, Galilean women, had gone to the tomb that morning and claimed to have seen a vision of what? Angels, it said in uh, 24, 23 of Luke. And those angels told the women that Jesus was alive. He had risen from the dead. The combined testimony of the various groups of women who had gone to the tomb was that Jesus' body was gone. They all said that together. His body was missing. And this truth was confirmed likewise by some of the men. Who were the two men? Peter and John, who had gone to the tomb. And they, to be sure, also testified, yes, his body was, is gone. It's missing. But him they saw not. Remember that at the end of verse 24? But him they saw not. And so these two disciples were heading back to their former lives, whatever whatever that was, whatever they had done before. They became disciples. And their messianic hopes in Jesus, of course, were dashed to pieces against the rocks of death. They were headed downhill, weren't they? Even though they were going north, we said Jerusalem's on a hill, so they were going Spiritually speaking, downhill. Their backs were to the cross. Their backs were also to the empty tomb and all the wonderful reports of the empty tomb. However, the good thing in all of this is that they had put their trust in the right person. They may not have understood that he was far more than just a now dead, once mighty prophet of God, and they may not have understood anything at all about his deity, nor did they have an inkling of a clue that the promised Messiah of necessity must suffer and die to atone for the sins of Adam's race. They were clueless on all of that, but he was at the center of their conversation, right? And that was a good thing. They were trying to reason through together all that they knew about him and about the circumstances of his death and the, the tomb situation. If you had walked up to them and asked them if they would like some enlightenment on the whole situation, what do you think these two would have said? Yes, yes. That's what they were seeking, was enlightenment. And what else were they in dire need of? Comfort. They were, they were very, very distraught. So because the very best way to be enlightened and to get comfort is to, for Jesus to give those who want enlightenment and to comfort them is, is uh, with the truth of the word of God, he drew near unto them. They, he loved these two. He knew these two. They were his followers. They loved him. They just didn't recognize him, but they loved him. 
They were seeking enlightenment. They were seeking comfort. And so Jesus drew near. He was going to enlighten them and he was going to comfort them. Now who does that for the believer? The Holy Spirit. But the Holy Spirit hadn't yet been given. So he came, the risen Savior came alongside of them on their spiritual journey, purposely restraining them from perceiving that was him, that it was him. Remember, it says he made their eyes holden. (laughs) Funny King James way of saying he he purposely did not allow them to know it was him. And he purposely encouraged them with their thought process with a two pronged question, which was number one concerning the subject of their conversation. Number two, the sadness of their countenance. He wanted to know what was the subject of their conversation and why were they sad? They were of course, rather mockingly, almost sarcastically amazed that anybody could be coming out from Jerusalem and not know about the events that they had been discussing regarding the past three days. Remember when he said in just very short Greek, three words, he came up to them and he heard them talking for a while and then he said, what the word? (laughs) In other words, you know, what are you guys talking about? You know, how could anyone come out of Jerusalem and not know about the events of the past three days. So they were a little bit sarcastic when they asked him that. Let's review, for the sake of everybody, their conversation, the conversation of the two with the Lord Jesus, who they didn't yet know, in verses 13 to 24, all right? Let's start at verse 13 of Luke 24, and it says, And behold, two of them went that same day to a village called Emmaus, which was from Jerusalem about three score furlongs. That's about seven or eight miles. And they talked together of all these things which had happened. And it came to pass that while they communed together and reasoned, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were holden that they should not know him. And he said unto them, and here's where he said, what the word, (laughs) what manner of communication are these that ye have one to another as ye walk and are sad? Two subjects. What's the subject of your conversation and why is your countenance so sad? And the one of them whose name was Cleopas answering said unto him, art thou only a stranger in Jerusalem and hast not known the things which are come to pass there in these days? And he said unto them, another long question, what things? (laughs) And they said unto him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, which was a prophet, notice past tense, dead now, which was a prophet, mighty indeed and word before God and all the people, and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to be condemned to death and have crucified him. But we trusted, here's their disappointment, but we trusted that it had been he which should have redeemed Israel. And beside all this, today is the third day since these things were done. They're the first believers to even mention the third day. Yea, and certain women also of our company made us astonished, which were early at the sepulcher. And when they found not his body, they came saying that they had also seen a vision of angels, which said that he was alive. And certain of them which were with us, that would be Peter and John, went to the sepulcher and found it even so as the women had said. Yes, indeed, his body was gone. But him they saw not. All right, I'm going to stop right there. So after having filled in their supposedly in-the-dark traveling companion with the brief details about his powerful life, his pitiful death, 
And then the strange third day tomb activities concerning Jesus of Nazareth. The next words that came out of the mouth of this very quiet, uh, rather gentle, a little bit strange because he's so naive and out of touch with everything that's going on. He must never watch the news, you know. How could he not know? <laughs> this, this traveling companion who, you know, probably came across as a very, very nice guy. Just a little weird. But the next words out of his mouth must have made their jaws drop. Blown the sandals right off of their feet. You know, he'd be walking along very politely, you know. What the word, what things. And then all of a sudden, ye fools, oh fools, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? I imagine the authority in his voice and everything just silenced them. What was he saying to them? Well, he was saying that you two have not used good head sense. Head sense. You're fools. Because you did not evaluate the crucifixion of Jesus with the scripture which is referred to here as all that the prophets have spoken. He goes on to say, not only had they not used good head sense, they had uh, not used good heart sense. They were slow of heart to believe. This is the kind of faith that never seems to have enough evidence or enough proof to believe. Have you ever met somebody like that? Always has to have something more. These two had all the evidence necessary to cause them to remain in Jerusalem. They should have stayed there with great joy and anticipation of something special yet to come. Don't you think? I mean, especially after hearing all the reports of the women and the men and the empty tomb and the angels. And don't you think you might have stuck around, especially if you knew, like they seem to have known, that there was supposed to be something about that third day? They, they say that. To Jesus. And this is the third day. So I don't know. But they left Jerusalem. As we mentioned last week. Um, the key word in Christ's statement. Is the word all. All that the prophets have spoken. You see the problem with Israel then. And the problem with much of the church today. Is that people are not being taught. The whole counsel of God. Rather they are taught. And sometimes they themselves choose selectively the parts of Scripture that they like. And what do they do with the parts of Scripture that they do not like? They omit them. They ignore them. They say, well, these aren't divinely inspired. This part is, but that isn't. Now, that's just Paul and his opinion. Not divinely inspired. Or they ignore them or completely dismiss them. I remember going to a church once where um, the pastor absolutely refused to ever, ever speak about sin or hell. And I questioned him on that. I said, why? And he said, well, it's just not in my personality. Oh, excuse me, sir. It's not in my personality either. I don't really like to talk about your sin, my sin, hell. Do you? But isn't it in the word of God? Shouldn't we preach the whole counsel of God? Absolutely. Praise the Lord, he left the ministry. He needed to. <laughs> now, we noted that the Lord did not rebuke these disciples for their lack of faith in the women's report. Right? He didn't rebuke them for their lack of faith in what they said the angels said. 
nor even when the empty tomb was um, verified by John and Peter. Now, they, he, they should have believed those reports, but the Lord did not rebuke them for not believing those reports. What he did admonish them about was not believing the scripture. And not just the scripture, but how much of the scripture? All the scripture. Now, I'm sure there were very puzzled-looking countenances on these two disciples when they heard the sudden authority in the voice of their traveling companion. Not only had he rebuked them, which was totally unexpected, but he had said something that they had never heard taught before by their spiritual leaders in their synagogues. He had said that the Christ, the promised one, the anointed one, the Messiah of necessity had to suffer before he entered into his glory. In other words, he was telling them that if they had known and believed the truth contained where? In all the prophets. What is that talking about? The entire Old Testament. If they had believed the Old Testament, they would have understood that it was imperative for the Messiah, Savior, to suffer. Ought not Christ to have suffered these things? That's super strong in the Greek. It's a double negative, which doesn't make a positive in the Greek. I've told you this before. It doesn't make any sense, but we Greeks are backwards about things. In the Greek, a double negative makes a positive. This is very strong. It was a fixed truth from eternity past that the anointed one of God should suffer, as the Lord Jesus had just suffered three days prior. Doesn't it tell us in Revelation 13, 8, that, the, that Jesus is the lamb who was slain when? From the foundation of the world. Even before the Lord Jesus came to earth. He is the eternal son of God. Even before he came to earth. And was incarnated in Mary's womb. He spoke of coming to do his father's will. To be a sacrifice pleasing to him. In the body God had prepared for him. That's in Psalm 40 verses 6 to 8. It's also in Hebrews 10 verse 5. The forerunner of the Christ. The voice crying in the wilderness, proclaiming the Messiah's coming. Who was he? John the Baptist. How did he introduce Israel to her Messiah? What did he say? Behold, the Lamb of God, which cometh to take away the sins of the world. Didn't the Jewish people realize that a lamb spoke of sacrifice? Hmm? Doesn't it? A lamb to the Jewish people speaks of sacrifice. Didn't the term the lamb of God take them right back to Abraham's words to Isaac in Genesis 22, 8? What did Abraham, inspired by God, say to his son when his son said, where is the lamb for the sacrifice? He said, my son. Here, listen to this. This is exactly what he said. My son, God will provide himself. A lamb. Think of the main words in that. It's so beautiful. Son, God, himself, lamb. There you go. There it is. The lamb introduction by the Baptist would remind every Jew of their sin sacrificial system. And particularly the Passover lamb, whose blood applied to the doorposts of their ancestors' homes saved them from a firstborn death. There is one thing you absolutely do not want to do. You never want to leave this world being 
a firstborn only without having had the, the blood of the lamb applied to your heart. You know what I'm saying? It was so meaningful. It was so, such a great picture. We're all firstborns, aren't we? When we're born out of our mother's womb. But you need to be born again. You need to have the second birth. You don't want to leave this world, the firstborn, without having applied the blood of the lamb to the doorpost of your heart. Well, from early in his ministry, the Lord himself spoke of his mandatory but also voluntary sufferings. I mean, we just talked about what John the Baptist said in John chapter 1. That's pretty early, right? John chapter 1, verse 29. Behold the Lamb of God. Then you have in John chapter 2, verse 19, the Lord himself predicting that the religious rulers would do what to his temple? They would destroy his temple, his body, but in three days he would rise it back up. Then in John chapter 3, verse 14, he had said to Nicodemus, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness. You know that lifting up of the serpent in the wilderness when all the Israelites were bitten by the vipers and they were all going to die? And God told Moses to lift up a brazen serpent on a, you know, a post. That was an Old Testament type, a picture, a prophetic picture of Jesus becoming sin. You know, the snake. Did he become sin for us? Yes. To save us in this, the wilderness of this world from the inevitable bite of death. We have all been bitten by the serpent. And we're all inevitably going to die from the bite of the serpent. Sin. You know, we all have sin. So he said to Nicodemus, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must. Isn't that like ought not? Mandatory? Even so, the Son of Man must suffer or, or be lifted up. What was he doing there? Predicting his crucifixion. And he said, must. And the Son of Man was his favorite term for himself. And it, all the Jews knew the Son of Man was a reference back to Daniel, to the Messiah. He was saying the Messiah must be crucified. And then we have Mark 8.31 where he had said, again, the Son of Man must suffer many things. He talked about those who follow him, those who would follow him, denying themselves and taking up what? Their own crosses, implying that he would take up his cross. And then right after that, he talked about a corn of wheat falling into the ground and doing what? Dying, so that it could then bring forth much fruit. And he followed that statement by then saying he would be lifted up. So that he might draw all men to himself. And then in Luke 9.22 he again said the son of man must suffer many things. In Luke 17.25 he said but first must he, speaking of himself, the son of man suffer many things. Right before that verse he had spoken about the son of man returning in his glory like lightning. You know coming out of the one side of the sky and going to the other. But he said but first, before the Son of Man returns in his glory, first he must suffer many things. And then remember when Peter argued with him about, oh, Lord, may this never be. You know, you're not going to die. The Lord rebuked him with the strongest words he ever spoke to a believer. He said, get thee behind me, Satan. Thou art an offense to me. Peter was a stumbling block to the Lord. And then Jesus said, for thou savor not the things that be of God. His suffering was something of God. You know, it was a must. It was mandatory. It was uh, declared from eternity past. If there was to be any salvation for you and me, Calvary was an absolute necessity. Don't go to a church where they don't talk about a bloody cross, okay? That was a necessity for our salvation. Contra and, and who says that, by the way? Am I making that up? Who says that? God says it. And where does he say it? 
in his word, all his word, his entire word, Old Testament and New Testament. Contrary to what these two disciples and and the Jewish people thought and yet do today, most Jews, not everyone, but they thought that, uh, I mean, contrary to what they thought, there is no, no scriptural objection whatsoever for Jesus being the Messiah. There is no scriptural objection for Jesus of Nazareth being the true Messiah. Fact is, his sufferings prove that he is the true Messiah. He would not be the Savior if he had not first been the suffering servant. The cross had to precede the crown. Without the cross, you and I would die in our sins, and we would never, ever see any glory in eternity, much less bring glory and honor and praise to God and to Christ for having redeemed us by way of his precious blood. And isn't that what he wants? Remember his high priestly prayer of John 17? He goes on, you know, talks, prays to his father, and the conclusion of the whole prayer is, Father, it is my heart's desire that those you have given to me, your love gifts to me, will see me in my glory. We would never do that. We would never see him in his glory and praise him for his grace and his mercy and all those attributes that we have learned by way of being sinners saved by grace if he had not first gone to the cross. The Emmaus travelers probably wondered at what they heard, and that's putting it mildly, what they heard the stranger say. But before they could even formulate a question to ask him where in the scripture he got his ought not the Christ to suffer information, I'm sure they wanted to say, what? Where do you get that? But before they could even ask a question, he systematically launched into a jet tour Bible conference that covered the entire Old Testament in somewhat under two hours. That's how long they say it would take to walk the seven miles. Now that, as most good preachers will tell you, was a miracle in itself. To teach through the Old Testament the things concerning himself in less than two hours? Whoa. I have, I have been collecting for years, of course, books on the Bible, commentaries and that sort of thing. But I have also been collecting, every time I see the, a book, on the types the prophetic pictures or the metaphors of Christ in the Bible. I always get it. This is one that's been on my shelf for a long time. It weighs a good five pounds. <laughs> it is heavy. And I want you to see if you can from where you are. Look at the print on that. It is tiny, tiny, tiny. This, the man that wrote this book lived in the 1600s. Boy, they were intelligent back then. I'm telling you. But this, this book here is on the types of Christ in the Bible. Now, how did Jesus do that in less than two hours? I'm sure it took this man most of his life to do this. By the way, his name is Benjamin Keach. What a good job he did. This is, this is, it's not a book you want to read through. It's more like a reference tool. But Jesus went you know, through the entire Old Testament showing himself and why it was necessary that the Christ, the true Christ, would suffer, had to suffer and die. Uh, let me find my place here. Oh, and think of this, too. Not only was it phenomenal that he could do all that in less than two, but you know, he's short of words, wasn't he? He could say so much in just a few words, like what, what the word, <laughs> what thing. But um, think of this, he did not even have to open up some big heavy scrolls that he carried with him on the trip, you know, and open them up to, to quote from the scripture. 
Why? Because he had the whole thing memorized. And why wouldn't he? He is the author of the Old Testament as well as the New Testament. He is the author and finisher for finisher. <laughs> author and finisher of our faith, isn't he? All right. So Luke 24, 27 tells us that beginning with the writings of Moses, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, and then going through all the prophets and all the scripture, notice two times in verse 27, it says all. What did he do? That's the whole Old Testament. He expounded unto them the things concerning himself. Let me read that verse, 27. And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded unto them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. All the prophets, all the scriptures. All right. What was the subject of Jesus' teaching through the entire Old Testament concerning this special, most special, unrecorded sermon, which I really wish we had? The Lord didn't give it to us, so we would do our own homework, right? But what was his subject? It was the things concerning himself. So what is the main theme of the written word? The living word. The main theme of the written word is the living word, Jesus himself, both Old and New Testaments. The Old Testament is not a book about a lot of now dead Jewish people which is what my father told me one time. Oh, that's just a book about a lot of dead Jewish people, Catherine. I said, oh, Dad, have you ever read it? <laughs> no. In Hebrews 10:7, the pre-incarnate Christ, this is before he entered into Mary's womb, said, in the volume of the book, it is written of me. In the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 17, remember he said, Think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. In other words, the Old Testament. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill them. He is the fulfillment of Scripture. And remember these words in John 5? He said, Search the Scripture, for in them ye think ye have eternal life. They are they which testify of me. He said, had ye believed Moses, ye would have believed me, for he wrote of me. Did Moses write about Jesus? Yes. You know those books that you think are kind of boring sometimes? With all the genealogies and Leviticus and the whole sacrificial system and all the stuff about the text. Did Moses? All of that was about him. Israel in their wanderings in the desert? Yeah, all about Jesus. Do you remember how he read from a clear messianic passage in Isaiah in his hometown synagogue in Nazareth? And after he did so, he said, this day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. And what did they want to do with him? Stone him to death, kill him, push him, I'm not, push him off a cliff. Do you recall how he also told people during his ministry that his teaching in parables was fulfillment of Old Testament messianic prophecy. He said that the Baptist, John, was fulfillment of Malachi 3.1, and he told them that his own rejection had been prophesied in Psalm 118.22. The stone which the builders rejected, has the same has become the head of the corner. Remember when Peter, don't you love him, pulled out his little dagger and cut off the ear of the high priest's servant? there in Gethsemane and Jesus told him to put up his sword and he said to him 
But how then shall the scripture be fulfilled that thus it must be? All this was done, Peter, he said, that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. And in Luke twenty-two thirty-seven, after he said to his disciples that he would be put both into prison and to death, he then said, and he was referring to Isaiah 53, 12, for I say unto you that this that is written must yet be accomplished in me. He was reckoned among the transgressors. Was he? Yes. And quoting from the Psalms regarding Israel's hatred of him, he said, but this cometh to pass that the word might be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. Now, I'm just showing you in a few places how the Lord Jesus had previously in his ministry on earth. And these two were his disciples, so they had heard a lot of this. They weren't apostles, but they were disciples. How the Lord had previously quoted from the Old Testament scriptures to show and teach his followers that the passion and the suffering of the Christ was predicted years in advance. In fact, centuries in, in advance. In fact, millennia in advance. Even back to the Garden of Eden. And the shedding of the blood of an innocent animal, which I think was probably a lamb, to cover the sinful nakedness of Adam and Eve with coats of skin. And, of course, all the way back to God's first promise, the Proto-Evangelium. Genesis 3.15, his first promise to send a savior, the seed of the woman who would suffer serious bruising by the seed of the serpent. Who actually is responsible for killing Jesus? The Jewish religious rulers. They were the seed of the serpent. Didn't Jesus say, ye are of your father, the devil? So beginning at Moses, the Lord began to expound the scriptures to these despairing disciples, showing them truths that had been right there before them all along, but their eyes had been holding again. <laughs> they hadn't seen them. Look, for example, let's jump ahead to it. This is going to be part of next week's lesson, but look at verse 44. This is after Jesus. This is his fifth resurrection, post-resurrection appearance. Remember when the, everybody's gathered together, all the believers in the upper room, and he walks right through the door, and they're scared because they think he's a ghost. And he shows them he isn't by eating with them. And then look at verse 44, what he says to them. And he said unto them, and remember now, these two disciples, Cleopas and his unnamed companion, are here in this upper room. They went running back. So they're here, and they get to hear this again from Jesus. He said to them, these are the words which I spake unto you while I was yet with you, that all things must be fulfilled, which were written in the law of Moses and in the prophets and in the Psalms concerning me. Verse 45, then opened he their understanding that they might understand the scriptures. You know, these two got another blessing. They got two sermons in one day from the Lord Jesus. Wow, that's incredible. Um, all right, so he begins to expound. Let's start at verse, well, I already read verse 27. Um, that's where it says he expounds all things. There, there is absolutely, now I'm going to try to do a jet tour through the Old Testament, but there's no way... <laughs> In the uh, past 2,000 years since the Lord gave this unrecorded Old Testament teaching sermon, there's no way that anybody could duplicate it. Not Mr. Keach in, in this big fat book. Nobody. Nobody could do what he did in the compact way, especially that he must have said it. But we can speculate on some of the truths about himself in the Old Testament that we have come to understand with our added adva uh, advantage of having the New Testament. 
And also we have an added advantage of having the Holy Spirit, the teaching ministry of the Spirit. But even then, no words of mere men can begin to compare with how he must have taught these truths. You know, weaving them together regarding himself in such a tapestry of magnificent beauty that the result was holy heartburn in those that heard it. But I do, my prayer is that even though we can't even begin to repeat what he said, I hope by the time we're finished you all have holy heartburn. That sounds mean, doesn't it? But I want you to have heartburn, but put in front of it holy. (laughs) Okay, so with that understanding in mind, let's try to consider what he very well may have explained to the disciples on their way to Emmaus. Since he started at the writings of Moses, he would have discussed the type of himself. When I say type, it means picture. The Bible is full of pictures that speak of, of, of him. He would have discussed the type of himself in Adam. Adam had no father but God. Christ, likewise, had no father but God. So in the special way, both were called the sons of God. Adam was made heir of the world. Christ is the heir not only of the world, but of the world to come. The first Adam merited death for his seed. Christ, who is called the second Adam, merited life by way of his own death for the sons of Adam. Adam is the head of the human physical family. Christ is the head of God's spiritual family. Surely, too, as I just mentioned, the Lord would have referred to Genesis 3.15 and the first promise of a redeemer who would suffer bruising at the hand of the serpent. And, of course, he would be miraculously, supernaturally conceived because he would be of the seed of a woman, right? Women don't have seed, men do, so it was a miraculous conception. And the Lord Jesus may have traced through Old Testament history all the many ways that the serpent, who was there in the garden and heard that one day a redeemer would come and give a fatal bruise to his head, so the old serpent gave it his best throughout the Old Testament days to prevent the promised seed of the woman from getting here in the first place, from even being born, because she had to come from the seed of the woman. So she would be from the righteous lineage of Eve through, first of all, Abel. And then, of course, we know Seth. And then on down the line, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, David, you know, he gave the lineage. So why has Israel always, always been persecuted in the world? Her whole history. It's satanic. It's purely satanic. Satan was trying to prevent the promised seed, the Messiah, from even being born. And it began as early as Cain and Abel. It was Satan who was behind the murder of righteous Abel. Which is why the Lord referred to Satan as a murderer from when? From the beginning. Abel was an early picture of Christ, an early type of Christ. In fact, when Eve gave birth to him, she thought he was the promised seed of the woman, but he wasn't. But he was a type of Christ being murdered by his own brother. Um, Isaac, think of all the patriarchs, just about, patriarchs of the faith. Isaac was persecuted and hated by his brother Ishmael. Esau hated and wanted to kill his brother Jacob. Joseph was hated. And sold for pieces of silver by his brothers, right? I also got to thinking about how interesting it is that the um, not only were all the patriarchs persecuted, other than Abraham, 
You know, Abraham was a Gentile. <laughs> I always love to say that because I get the shock look on everybody's face. He started out as a Gentile. He was out of Ur of the Chaldees. When he went crossed over, he became a Hebrew. That's what Hebrew means, crossed over. He crossed over the Euphrates. And he became, of course, the father of, of Isaac and Jacob and Joseph. But anyway, he started out as a Gentile. <laughs> but uh, I was going to say, isn't it interesting that all of the mothers of the patriarchs were barren? Sarah. See, what, what was she, 90 years old when she finally gave birth? Yeah, I mean, way past menopause. <laughs> and also, of course, Rebecca was barren and Rachel was barren. And they're the mothers of, um, of uh, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. So that is kind of a picture, too, of the fact that Jesus would be born. I'm not born, but conceived supernaturally. All of them conceived supernaturally. Of course, it was different. It wasn't by the Holy Spirit, but still was miraculous. And actually, we could say the entire history of Israel and the life of Christ are definitely interconnected. Israel was an anticipation of the Christ, her Messiah. Israel is really a picture of Christ. And this is true um, in many ways. It's true in their escape from death, both of them, into Egypt. Which, by the way, was both through Joseph's. <laughs> you know... Israel was saved from dying of famine because God orchestrated things to send Joseph over to Egypt first so that he could save their lives by being the giver of the bread of life. Jesus escaped death from who? Herod the Great. Remember the slaughter of, of the children in Bethlehem? Because his father, Joseph, in a dream, was told to go to Egypt. Also, they both interconnect by their exoduses from Egypt back into the promised land. And before that, in their 40 days in the wilderness, remember early in his ministry, how many days did Jesus spend in the wilderness? 40 days. How many years did Israel spend in the wilderness? 40. Think about this. I just told you that about Israel coming out of a Gentile. <laughs> Man came out of a woman. I mean, no, excuse me, I'm sorry. That's how it's been ever since. <laughs> woman originally came out of a man. Right? Woman came out of a man, but from the woman came the Messiah. Israel came out of a Gentile, Abraham. But from Israel came the Messiah. Well, that'll give you something to chew on. All right, back to the wilderness. In the wilderness, how did they stay alive? Every day, they'd get up, and what was on the ground? Manna. Manna pictured Christ. He himself told us this. He said he was the true manna, the true bread that came down from heaven. And he, too, needs to be internalized, doesn't he, in order to live in this wilderness. The striking of the rock. Remember when Moses struck the rock in the wilderness? And what came forth? Life-giving water. The rock is Christ. And, you know, he was smitten too, wasn't he? And out of him came flowing river of life, life-giving water. That's why God got so mad at Moses, because he struck the rock twice. Only supposed to strike it once. Jesus died once for all. Moses ruined his picture, his type. <laughs> and then, of course, we have the sufferings and the persecution of Israel, who has been hated without a cause. 
I can't wait to hear Benjamin Netanyahu's speech today. I love that man. He's going to be the last one to speak at the UN. And he always lays it on the line. But why has Israel been persecuted? I mean, it doesn't make any sense if you look at it through all of history, does it? Why have so many people hated the Jewish people? Nations have hated the Jewish people. It makes no sense at all. They are hated without a cause. I'll tell you why. I already did. It's all satanic. He tried to prevent the Messiah from coming through the Jewish people the first time. Now he is trying to destroy and annihilate Israel so that he won't have a place to come back to and sit on his throne in Jerusalem. And in the meantime, who does he hate? Not only the Jews, but the Christians who have put... You know what it's all about? It's all about Jesus Christ. It is. It is all about Jesus Christ and the hatred, Satan's hatred of the promised seed of the woman. And ultimately, Israel will be recognized by all the nations of the world as the apple of God's eyes, eye, and she will be honored on earth, picturing also the recognition and the ultimate victory of Christ as he reigns as King of kings and Lord of lords, seated on his throne where? In Jerusalem. The Lord likely would have also spoken of Abraham placing his only beloved son Isaac on the altar and how that event was a prophetic picture of his own sacrifice as God's only beloved son. He probably showed them, I don't know how he couldn't, the entire tabernacle system and uh, all the sacrifices, the burnt offering, the peace offering, the trespass offering, the um, all of them. There's so many, I can't remember all of them, but there's, uh, he would have talked about all the different sacrifices, how they're a picture of him, and all the pieces of furniture, the Ark of the Covenant, you know, all that, um, the mercy seat, and the veil, how all of it foreshadowed him and his atonement work, and he may even have expounded upon the prophetic, profound prophetic meanings in terms of his own death, burial, and resurrection of the spring feasts of Israel. You know, in Leviticus 23, I think it is, Israel is given seven feasts to celebrate. And they all picture Christ. It's a, he, what feast did he die on? The first one, Passover, because he's the Passover lamb. Then he was buried during the Feast of Unleavened Bread. He had no sin. He was unleavened and was buried in the earth. But he would not, his body would not see corruption because there's no sin in him. Then what day did he rise? Day of the Feast of First Fruits, because he is the first fruit of the resurrection. Then 50 days later, when did the Holy Spirit come? On the day of Pentecost. And you know what? Those are the spring feasts, the four spring feasts. There are three feasts left, because there's a total of seven. The three fall feasts have not yet corresponded to the Lord's life. But the next one to occur is the Feast of Trumpets. do 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 And we're out of here. <laughs> I can't wait for that all right. Anyway, um, I would think that he would have explained all that. I think the meaning of the Day of Atonement. Mm, that would be a big one. Do you know that in Leviticus 16.8, the story about the scapegoat? Uh, actually, there were two goats. There were two goats that had to be offered on the Day of Atonement. One goat was killed. Throat was slit. His blood was offered, you know, sprinkled on the altar. That represents the Messiah's death. The other goat was let go. The priest would lay his hands on him, you know, confess the sins of the, of the people, and then let the goat go. That symbolizes Christ's resurrection. 
God could have used one goat, but I don't know how he would have done it. Because once you kill the goat, you know, you'd have to raise him back to life to let him go. So he used two goats. That's why there's two goats. One to speak of the Messiah's death, one to speak of his, his resurrection. Of course, to the Lord would probably have included the significance of Jonah's three days and three nights in the belly of the whale, picturing his own burial in the earth for three days and three nights and his subsequent resurrection. And don't you know, he could not have skipped talking about Joseph who, as I mentioned before, was hated by his own brothers. He was plotted against. He was sold by them for silver. He was stripped of his robe. He was sinless in the face of evil temptation. Potiphar's wife. But nonetheless, he was lied about, and he was placed in captivity with two guilty men. Christ was crucified with two guilty men. (coughs) But he was resurrected, so to speak, wasn't he? To, to a position at the right hand of Pharaoh as the provider of the bread of life. He even married a Gentile. Joseph married an Egyptian. He married a Gentile. Who is Christ married to? Primarily a Gentile bride, the church. And then at long last, don't you love the scene in Genesis, when finally Joseph is recognized by his brothers who repented and bowed down before him, as Israel one day will do with the Lord Jesus. The Lord's Emmaus Discourse, I decided to call it that, his Emmaus Discourse surely would have included such critical passages of Scripture as, you're all waiting for this one, Daniel 9, verses 24 to 27, the famous 70 weeks prophecy. If you have never studied that prophecy, you need to get our two-set CD album. It is the most fantastic prophecy in the Word of God. That's saying a lot. Probably not quite as fantastic as the Proto-Evangelium, but it is amazing. You know, if you calculated Daniel's prophecy there, you would Israel could know the very day that she could expect her Messiah to officially present himself to the nation. And that was the day that he rode into Jerusalem on the colt of a donkey. To the very day. That's why he said, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, if you had known this thy day of your visitation, you could have figured it out. And I think some of them did. They just wanted to willfully reject him. It also tells us in that 70 weeks prophecy that the Messiah would be cut off. What's that speak of? Death, but not for himself. He wasn't cut off for himself. He didn't have any sin. Why did he die? For our sin. And don't you know, too, that he would have recited from verses in the Psalms and Zechariah, uh, like Psalm 22:16, that says they pierced my hands and feet, um, that predicted his ride into Jerusalem. That would be in Zechariah on the colt of a donkey, his betrayal by a close friend, and that when the shepherd was smitten, what would happen to the sheep? They would scatter. Uh, there's just so many passages. I don't have time. I mean, I'd love to read Isaiah 53 to you. That alone speaks, I must have made their hearts burn. When he read to them Isaiah 53, that's an amazing chapter, all about the sufferings of the coming Messiah. Two very specific details. Even quotes what he said. What? Is it in your homework? Oh, good. Okay, you will be looking at it. All right. Um, and then, of course, he would have, he would have talked about Jeremiah and how he was rejected by his own nation and pictured the man of sorrows. What is Jeremiah known as? The weeping prophet, right. 
And he would have showed them about David's rejection and his betrayal by his close friend, Ahithophel, which pictured the coming sufferings of David's greater son, the Messiah, and his betrayal by a close friend named Judas. And I can imagine that after this stranger, they still don't know who Jesus is, but I imagine that after he began to talk and to teach, that the two-hour walk to Emmaus just flew by all too quickly for Cleopas and his companion. And before they knew it, they had arrived at their destination. And what's funny is that even after he had called them fools and slow of hearts, they were not at all eager to part from this man. I think he might have been reminding them a little bit of Jesus. You know, wow. And their heart, we are told, their heart was on fire, ignited by the flaming words that came from his lips. Words that came straight from their own scripture. Passages that they had never seen or perceived before in light of a suffering Messiah. But now, you know, when they're open to them, they're so evident and they're so abundant. How? And they must have had a V8 moment, you know. <laughs> How could they have missed them? And the one, Jesus, they had followed his disciples, matched up perfectly with everything that this stranger had been showing them. And their hope and their faith in Jesus was coming alive again. They were being resurrected spiritually. And they wanted to hear more. So what did they do? They constrained the stranger to abide with them. Let's look at the remaining part of this passage, verses 28 to 35. And they drew nigh unto the village, whither they went. That would be Emmaus. And he made as though he would have gone further. But they constrained him, saying, Abide with us, for it is toward evening and the day is far spent. And he went in to tarry with them. Verse 30. And it came to pass, as he sat at meat with them, he took bread and blessed it and brake and gave to them. And their eyes were opened and they knew him. And he vanished out of their sight. And they said one to another, did not our heart burn within us while he talked with us by the way and while he opened to us the scriptures and they rose up the same hour and returned to Jerusalem and found the eleven gathered together and them that were with them. Not only the apostles, but all the disciples, men and women. And what, did, what were they greeted with as soon as they went in? They told them something before they could open up their mouths. They were told, the Lord is risen indeed and hath appeared to Simon. That's the third post-resurrection appearance. They were told that the Lord was alive and it appeared to Peter. But now the Emmaus disciples share their story. Verse 35, and they told what things were done in the way and how he was known of them in breaking of bread. All right, the word translated constrained, again, strong word in the Greek. He, they insisted that he not continue on his journey. They wanted him to abide with them, but they gave a good excuse. They said, it's late in the day, you know, it's not safe to travel now, so come abide with us. He would have gone on his way, wherever that was too. Well, we know he winds up back in Jerusalem, <laughs> you know, just, he could be right back there in the upper room, but um, he would have not joined them if they hadn't invited him. But these two wanted the additional blessing of his presence. But more important than having his presence with them 
was that they wanted to be taught more. They wanted more spiritual enlightenment. They had already received exceeding abundantly above all that they could have ever even thought to ask when he had come alongside them on their journey, especially, you know, when he seemed so clueless <laughs> about things. And But it flipped, hadn't it? They had actually become the ones who had learned a thing or two. He taught them. Um, as we learn in verse 32, while he taught them, their heart began to burn. That's what I call holy heartburn. And it was due to him opening what? The scripture to them. Light was beginning to dawn even though outside the sun was setting. Now these two could just not let this stranger vanish into the night. Because they might, you know, for all they knew, they might never see him again. Why to think about it, he was really as great a teacher as Jesus had been. Might even be a little bit better. <laughs> and that's not blasphemous because he was Jesus. They wanted to retain him. And so they insisted that he come in and sup with them. Think of Revelation 3.20. Behold, I stand at the door and if any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come in and sup with him. That's exactly what he did here. There were more blessings to come from him, blessings they would have missed if they had not proven their desire for him by constraining him to abide with them. This was like Jacob during his night of wrestling with the pre-incarnate Lord Jesus. Remember, he said to Jacob, they'd been wrestling all night, let me go for the day breaketh. But Jacob said to him, I will not let thee go except thou bless me. Isn't that a lesson for you and I? Do not ever be satisfied with the blessings you have when it comes to spiritual enlightenment. Don't ever be satisfied and content. Now, we ought to be content with material things, but not with spiritual enlightenment. Get all that God has for you because he wants to give it to you. Cleopas and his companion would not let Jesus go. They were very earnest in constraining him to stay, and like Jacob, they did indeed get additional blessings. So never turning down a sincere invitation for more spiritual light from him and for more fellowship with him, the Lord went in to tarry with him, and he continued likely to teach them all things concerning himself as the meal, the dinner was being prepared. I don't know who prepared it, but I'm sure he continued to teach them. And do you notice something? He is the guest, right? Correct? Is he the guest here in this home or inn or wherever it is? He's the guest, but he assumed the duties of the host, saying the blessing, uh, breaking the bread and passing it to them. Cleopas humbly must have honored him by asking him to take the position as head of the household. And that was a good thing. Cleopas didn't know it was Jesus, but still Jesus had the preeminence here, didn't he? And that was good. That was very good because it was when the Lord performed the common procedure of breaking the bread that instantly the formerly beholden eyes of the two disciples were opened and they knew him. How do you think they knew him when he broke the bread and passed it to them? Hmm? Yeah, they'd seen him do that many times, but I wonder if for the first time they noticed the nail prints in his hand. Here, have the bread. I don't know, that's speculation, but as soon as he broke the bread and gave it to them, they knew him. And what happened the minute they knew him? Poof! 
He was gone. He vanished from their sight. Now that tells you a little something about our glorified bodies to come, right? Get tired of being with me, you can just poof, disappear. <laughs> Get tired of listening to me, go, there you're gone. <laughs> and this is uh, when the two disciples looked at one another and they said, Did not our heart burn within us while he talked with us, by the way, and while he opened to us the scripture? What gave them their heart burn? Was it the bread he had just given to them? No, not the physical bread he had given to them. It was the spiritual bread he had given. He said, they didn't even say, didn't our hearts burn when we saw who he was? It's Jesus! My heart's on fire! It's the resurrected Christ! Is that when their heart burned? No, it was when he opened the bread of life. When he talked to us on the way and opened to us the scripture. The fervor and the fire had begun when he had started expounding all things concerning himself from the scripture. So the order was first, the truth of scripture concerning Jesus as the Messiah Savior, that it was not at all contrary that he suffered and died. And then the revealed truth of his resurrection from the dead. If he had showed himself first to them, like I said, they would probably have been too emotional to listen. So he gave him the word first. Then he verified the word with his resurrected person. The entire gospel was now confirmed to them. The death, the burial, and the resurrection. And they were so fired up, it didn't matter how late the day was spent. They put their running shoes on, and I think they made that seven-mile track back to Jerusalem in no time at all. Don't you? They were so fired up that they couldn't wait to share their good news with others. And isn't that how it should be? When you and I get fired up, and I hope you do, I hope you get fired up when the scriptures are open to you, and that what you want to do as soon as you leave here is go and tell somebody else what you have learned. So my prayer for you is that every one of you will get heartburn. That doesn't sound very nice, but I want you to have holy heartburn. (laughs) Father, I pray that indeed every woman in this room will know what it is to have holy heartburn. I pray that they would yearn to learn and that they would yearn to discern and that they each would yearn to burn all the days of their life. We love you and we pray in your name. Amen.